0: All right, well, let's, let's read this and ask God to speak to us through the scripture. Starting in verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I want to skip on down to verse 21 of the same chapter. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this, your word. I pray that as we bring ourselves underneath it, that it would bring us both encouragement, and instruction today, that we would be able to receive it with glad hearts and open minds. Father, I pray for those that uh, feel a strong inclination to both hide, to run from you, to cover themselves or to cover things that they've done. I pray that you would both be gentle and strong as you call us out and welcome us here. And I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Great. Hey, there it is. So I want to go back through the last several weeks. And in just a moment, I want us to be considering this question What do we do? How do we deal with the reality of guilt? How do we deal with the reality of sin? Now, all of us, this is not some new thing for us because we were born into it. We're all very much familiar, most likely, with our sin or with the ways in which we feel afraid and ashamed and guilty. But for the very first people, This was a new thing. And so I want to go back through the weeks. Week number one, we talked about God creating everything, and he delighted over everything. Week number two, he creates man in his own image, and it's very good. He looks at them and says, this is really good. Week three, we talked about how God gave him a vocation, that he gave them work to do on the earth, to till the earth, to subdue it, to fill it. And he gives them to the work and gives the work to them as a gift. Then he gives marriage to this young couple. He gives it to them and blesses them. And in all of it, he's saying, this is so good. And then last week, everything begins to become unraveled. We looked at God's great enemy and we learned about how he works in the world to diminish God's provision for us, to question God's authority and judgment, and to diminish what's actually going to happen if you take the sin Uh, the, the choice to rebel against God, and then lastly exaggerates what they would get if they took the fruit. And so now they've taken it, and this is where we begin this passage. They've just taken the fruit. And they, they deal with this reality of guilt, of shame, and, and of fear. And I want to answer the question, how do we deal with the reality of guilt? How are we dealing with it just like our first parents? And I want to make a few really simple observations. So simple, in fact, that I, I just think any of you could do the job that I'm about to do today. Okay, Any of us could. This is one of the most explicit ways in which people are trying to deal with their guilt And it leaves them both exposed and in need of God's redemption. And the same way for us, we've been trying in the same ways to deal with our shame, with our guilt, with our fears, in similar ways to these first parents. And the obvious nature of sin in the life of the individual is reflected in the life of these, Adam and Eve, in, in what they do. This inclination to cover up what's been lost this attempt to hide from God and then ultimately to avoid the blame and responsibility for what's happening. So we're going to look at those three things and then we're going to consider what does it look like for God and his persistent pursuit of us to ask us where are we and to come and clothe us with dignity. So my prayer for us is that we'd see us today all the ways that God's inviting us out of all the exhausting ways that we've been attempting to deal with this troubling thing called sin and invite us to come to him where he can dress us where we ended last week's sermon and wrote in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 to come to this great priest who can sympathize with our weakness and so that we might find help in time of need and so that invitation just continues as we look at these things and how they tried to deal with sin the first thing that I want to point out is that in verse seven, they're trying to cover it up. There's this inclination to cover it up. Look at verse seven again. It's going to be on the screen. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. A few things. Number one, their eyes are open to something. There's something new about their understanding. Now, this is what Satan had promised them. You're going to have knowledge that you have not had before, but the knowledge did not look like what they anticipated it to look like. Their eyes are open. First, we have to see what their previous state was like in order to understand how they fell like a thud. It's impossible for us to imagine being born into a world with perfect protection and to have only always obeyed before this moment that they realize that they're naked. Can you imagine for just a moment not knowing your own capacity to disobey and to rebel against God? Your own capacity to ignore what he said? The one who breathed life into their bodies? The one who'd shaped them with his own hands, they had never known any other reality other than listening to his word and obeying it. And in this first moment, their eyes are opened and they see something that they hadn't seen before. They're naked. And now it's different. Back up in chapter 2, verse 25, it describes the way that they are together in marriage like this. It says this, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed this is obviously going back to that that verse in chapter 3. Now they're naked, but something has changed about the way they're experiencing one another's presence. Their eyes have been opened and they're seeing things differently because of their sin. So yes, they did have knowledge. It was not what they anticipated. They had guilt and immediately they understood that they needed to cover themselves. They felt exposed. And they weren't previously ashamed. And now something has entered in that they feel this absolute need to to deal with, to cover up. So the first time that shame enters in. Now, some people might define shame as something, this fear that something is terribly wrong with us. And there's tons of definitions of what shame is. And rather than to get into the granular of what it means to experience shame, all of us can look at this story and relate to it and know what it feels like to feel this desire to keep something covered, to keep ourselves hidden, to avoid being exposed. Most of us have a memory like this. When someone has found us out, something we wish that wasn't true about us, someone finds out and they're like, oh, now I see this thing. We know that experience. And from the first moment, when there was something undesirable, uncomfortable, it prompted this desire to cover themselves. So their nakedness was something that they suddenly realize, and because of shame, they want to deal with it. Now, there's more people familiar with Aunt Brene, I call her Brene Brown. Thirty-seven million people have watched her TED Talks about shame. Okay? Now, you can go listen to her, and basically, she will present some really true things about pursuing vulnerability. I, I, I don't have many problems with what she says about it, but basically, she, she's presenting some ideas about the kingdom without the king. Now, she's telling us, like, the way to, to pursue vulnerability, and she's just an expert on shame. You can go listen to it, and I, I wouldn't despise anything she has to offer, but it's not enough with how to deal with it. And that's exactly where we've been since this very beginning. We've been spinning our wheels, trying to deal with it, trying to escape it, trying to figure out a way out of feeling exposed. The reason that I know that this is universal, because most of us have had that dream where we showed up underdressed. All of us have had this experience, even if it was subconsciously. Working hard to pretend that somehow the capacity for evil and wrongdoing and rebellion wasn't inside of us. To cover it up, which is exactly what they did. So, how do they cover it? They take fig leaves, they sew them together, and make a loin covering for themselves. And these loin coverings, you guys need to understand that for a cultural Jew who would have been receiving this, they would have thought, wow. This is terribly insufficient. They didn't know what a bikini was, okay? So they're listening to this story and thinking their covering is not going to suffice for how God would have them to be covered. They kept themselves covered basically from head to toe. So hearing this story about their attempt to cover themselves with fig leaves would have sounded almost humorous, ridiculous to a a first century Jew, Sewing together fig leaves was something where they understood it wasn't sufficient. So even they were in, they had this inclination to, yes, cover up the reality of being exposed. Um, it wasn't just to cover their shame. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in, in his book, The Gospel in Genesis, talks about how this first experience of shame wasn't just the desire to cover up what was wicked, but a desire to restore something that was glorious. So one of the things that God had imparted to them was his very image. He had stamped them distinct from the rest of creation. So there was something glorious about them even being able to look at each other and saying, you resemble our maker. And there was something in their resemblance that had been lost, that they were trying to make up for. There was something glorious that had been lost. And so fig leaves, whatever we're personally using to present ourselves as more glorious than we actually are, or less evil than we actually are. (laughs) All of us are familiar with this story. I had a friend of mine talking about uh, a kid that they had been around. They're like, this kid would be great if he didn't have to tell us about it so often. And isn't that the story of most of us? So many things would be wonderful if we didn't have to constantly be presenting ourselves as better than we are or not as bad as that we actually are. So either spiritually, pop psychology, so many places we're attempting to pursue the kingdom without the king because we're not just trying to cover over, we're trying to avoid the reality that we've lost our resemblance to God himself. And we must eventually deal with the one with whom our accountability belongs, okay? Look, they weren't just hiding themselves or hiding from one another. We're going to see in the next verse, they were hiding from God. And for us today, there's so many ways that we're pursuing to do this. I want to give a few suggestions on how we pursue covering over ourselves or make ourselves more glorious than we actually are. Maybe for you, the triumph has been through the therapeutic. You found a counselor that made you feel less bad about yourself or less ashamed. And, and maybe those things have been really redemptive and helpful. I'm not dismissing them. I'm saying, hey, if you aren't being exposed to God himself, then it's all just a ploy to cover things up. Maybe through career coaching or trying to reconcile us to being more successful or just as successful as the other people around us. Or the money that we make. Or the cars that we drive. Or the clothes that we wear. Or the level of education or the credentials beside our name. Our education. All potentially an attempt to cover over the feelings of inadequacy that we've had throughout all the history of humanity. Maybe even in religious ways we've attempted to deal with this nakedness. Giving of ourselves to things that feel like some higher cause. Some of the most dangerous things are good things. In all of these attempts, there's still something that that would mean being exposed if we uh, let them go. Either we work hard to remove God's demands or the demands of the world in our lives uh, in order to live shamelessly. Or to dismiss the feelings of guilt and sense that maybe we violated God's command. In all of these things, whatever we do, our very best to make up for what's been lost will still be insufficient. As insufficient as these Jews hearing the story of Adam and Eve putting loincloths on, okay? In so many ways, we construct things so that we can present ourselves to the world as less uh, guilty, and more glorious than we actually are. In the same way, our own coverings, all the ways that we're attempting to deal with our guilt are insufficient. They're not going to deal with our shame. They're not going to deal with our ultimate hiding from one another or from God. The fig leaves, and maybe just for themselves, hiding themselves, and would be this t- attempt to restore a sense of what's been lost. Maybe you can relate to this for a moment. And before uh, I move on, I just want to ask, have you ever shown up to the party dressed the wrong way? Do you know what that feels like? And today I'm not attempting to make you feel like you've come to the party dressed the wrong way. I just want to invite you to ask the question before we move on. Are there inclinations that I have to cover up the great potential to rebel against God or the great ways in which I'm not as glorious as I was made to be. Because our first response to sin is this, to perpetually be aware of our inadequacy and to always be attempting to deal with it. So sin's natural inclinations is trying to convince ourselves and others that we aren't as bad as we actually are and that we're actually more glorious than we actually are. This... Is what a lot of modern counseling is. This is a lot of what most helping professions is: is trying to attempt to make us better than we are, or not as bad as we actually are. So I want to keep moving forward. Adam and Eve—they knew very well that it wasn't just themselves and one another that they were accountable to. So what happens? The loin co- coverings were not enough. These minimal coverings might have made them feel a little bit better with one another, but then they heard the sound of something in the garden. Something is moving this way and they knew very well that the one that would ultimately hold them accountable wasn't how well they are presented and accepted by the person standing next to to them, but by God's presence in the garden. And so he comes. They hear him moving in the garden, moving towards them and they hide. And what little covering they had, was not enough, and they felt it. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So the second natural consequence of sin is that they would hide from God not just an inclination to cover ourselves, but that we would avoid God's presence. They hid from God's presence. And Adam explains why they hid from God's presence. He's like, where are you? And he begins to express, here's why I'm hiding behind these bushes, insufficiently hiding. Number one, he's afraid of God. All the things that Satan had told him about, hey, you're not really going to die. Immediately, he's beginning to wonder, maybe I'm really going to die. Like maybe God meant business when he said, if you take this fruit, there's going to be consequences and judgment. And so all the ways that he'd avoided thinking about the judgment that would come by taking the fruit, now the sudden reality that God actually is just, and he's afraid of God himself. Afraid of God because of the promise of what God had said. If you take it, you're going to die. So he's imagining God's about to show up and he's going to strike me dead. It's going to happen. And he says that he's afraid because why? Because he was naked. He knew that he was exposed. He's avoiding God's presence, not only because of God's judgment, but because he realized I am not what I was and I am exactly where I'm at. Now he's got the loincloths on at this point and he's still saying, I'm naked. He avoided God's presence because he didn't want to be in alignment with the one who would actually hold him accountable. So many times, I would say this in my own life as well. The reason that we don't make space for God is because we're we're not comforted by his presence. We're seeking to avoid it because we're afraid that God might have some type of correction for us. So many times the reason our habits don't align with our beliefs is because of this. We're afraid. We're afraid of being exposed With God where he would say, hey, this is something in your life that doesn't line up with my word. We'd rather continue in hiding than be exposed in this way. But I just have a question. Where can you go from God's presence? Psalm 139. There's nowhere. There's nowhere you can avoid him. It's basically like pretending that you can hide like a toddler from their parents when they've painted on the wall. They know that eventually it's going to be exposed So he's hiding, he's naked. And the application today is if you're hiding, the invitation of God is to come into the light, to come from being uncomfortable to being received by him, where he asks the question, where are you? And he begins, the subject of their conversation begins to change. Now before this, Before this, Satan is telling them like, no, you're not really going to die. God knows you're going to eat this fruit and you're going to be like them. So all of the subject of their conversation has been about God up to this point. And for many of us, we have a lot of comfort with talking about God until the subject turns to ourselves and we're the subject of God's conversation, okay? So suddenly his conversation, God begins to ask him a question. This isn't, hey, what do you think is going to happen if you eat the tree of the fruit? Like, what, what, what's going to happen to you? He's not, he's not conversing about what this man thinks about God. He's actually asking him, where are you? Have, who told you? Have you eaten of the fruit? He asked him these three questions. Look at verse 11. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I had commanded you not to eat? So first he asked him, where are you? God hadn't misplaced them. Second question, who told you? How did you come to this knowledge that you, were afraid, that you were naked? Who told you this? And then the third question, have you eaten? And in this moment, he has a great opportunity for confession to just say, I did it. I did this thing to come out of hiding, to no longer be pretending that somehow God wouldn't see him. But instead, how does he respond? Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So he asked them a few questions. Where are you? Who told you? Did you eat? They answer with a few answers. He finally comes to the conclusion, yes, I ate of the tree, but before he does, I want to point out that our third response to guilt in our lives, to sin, is to avoid responsibility. So in response to these three questions, he's saying, it wasn't me, it was her, it was you, it was the serpent. We were, what happened? She gave it to me. So I want to point out a few ways that we do this. The first thing he says is the woman that you gave. So the woman, he's saying, I want to diminish the responsibility because it's really a shared project that you gave us. You gave us this shared project at work where it wasn't just me that was responsible. There were both of us here in the garden, and she was here, and I was here, and there was a serpent involved. There was more than just me, okay? Now, there was a question directed at Eve. No, it was directed at him, and he begins to say, okay, it's really complex to understand whose responsibility this is, okay? That's the first way that we avoid it. Second way, you gave me. That woman, you gave me. In other words, He's diminishing the quality of God's gift. In other, like this circumstance that you put me in, God, how could you possibly expect me to resist what she was saying to me? I mean, she, you gave her to me, then you have some responsibility in putting me in this environment, making me vulnerable to this beautiful woman. Third way, she gave it. He diminishes in this statement the, the clarity of God's command. Okay, here's what I mean. He didn't just say, I took it. He said, she gave it. You ever? Well, If you don't have kids, you won't understand this one. But there's all kinds of ways in which you tell your kid something, and there's another kid that will come along and say something different. They said I could do it. They gave me the Nintendo Switch, and I just began to play it. I don't know how this thing got into my hands. My sibling said this. And in the same way, he's not just avoiding responsibility saying, hey, she gave it to me, so I didn't really take it. Someone else was part of the equation. And then lastly, the last thing that we want to do that should be the first thing, he says, I ate it. I ate the tree. I ate of the fruit that you commanded me not to eat. The last thing we want to do is usually the first thing that we should do, and it's this, to take responsibility for our sin. To just say, I'm responsible. I rebelled against your word. It wasn't the environment. It wasn't the circumstances. It wasn't you, God. It was me. I chose what was evil in your sight. And the woman kind of demonstrates the same way. He goes to the woman, what is this you've done? The serpent deceived me. And I ate. Listen, there's lots of ways that you actually can be a victim of sin, okay? I'm not going to diminish the idea that Many of you have been victims of other people's sin towards you. But what I want you to know is that what you do with your victimhood matters. It's not an excuse for you doing whatever you want. We've really elevated this idea that we're victims of other people's sins. Other people did things to me, and so now I'm just in this perpetual life of making bad decisions. And, and I want to just come against that and say the invitation of God and asking the question, where are you, is for you to say, no, I chose the wrong thing. It's not because of wrongs done to me. It's because I had this desire and I made the choice. So here's the, the conclusion, okay? Conclusion. The natural reaction to, to sin for all of us is for us to try to cover it up and to present ourselves as better than we are or not as bad as we are, to hide in fear from God or to avoid the the blame. And from that point forward, humanity has been playing out that same response. If you don't know this, then just get a job and work with some people, and you'll see it play out over and over. Or just get yourself a family. You'll see it play out over and over and over. We will seek to cover up our own sin We'll seek to avoid God because we're afraid that we're wrong. And we'll seek to avoid taking responsibility. And in all these ways, the thing that's that's most predictable for us is that we're going to play those things out over and over and over. But one of the things I want you to know is that in this chapter, we're introduced to the reality of how God responds in the midst of that. And this picture of how he responds is played out throughout history and throughout every moment of rebellion in our lives too. He brings a couple of things and I want to observe these about God and then ask a couple questions. The last observation from this is God's pursuit and provision. He comes to them and he asks the question in verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? God knew where he was. He didn't leave them there. He knew and he came to them. He knew and he asked them that question, where are you? He asked us the same kinds of questions today. He calls out our name and says, where are you? He doesn't leave us hiding in the bushes as if we could hide. He comes to us. And he doesn't just pursue us. He makes an incredible provision for us. Now, he obviously could see that the loincloths weren't going to cut it, okay? Later in the, in the chapter, in verse 21, it says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, can you imagine witnessing the first blood being spilt for the very first time? The first animal that's having to die because of your choice? Because of your exposure and God saying, no, I'm going to make this provision for you. It's going to to be costly. So one of the consequences of sin immediately was there was death. Something had to die. God had to kill these animals in order to clothe them. And this introduces an idea throughout all of Scripture where there would have to be blood sacrifice in order to cover over our guilt and shame. And he deals with it perfectly. God makes provision for them. Yes, it required death. And yes, they would eventually die. But he gives this to them as a gift. It's the first time and it wasn't the last. And so that leaves me with this invitation that I want to present to you with four applications. The first: This is the question, where are you? And I could ask it in first place, first person, where am I today? Where am I? one of the applications for this passage for us today is this your covering if you're doing it yourself is insufficient it's not enough no matter how good you are no matter how many bad things you've avoided or no matter how many good things you've pursued it's never enough and it looks as silly as them sewing some fig leaves together it's silly Some of you may be thinking thinking about your life and thinking about the amazing accomplishments of your life. Amazing success, amazing worth. And to all of the world's standards, you would say, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. There's this guy in the New Testament and I love his testimony because he had a great pedigree and he had a great resume. His name was Paul. He had all of the things rooting for him. I mean, he could clothe himself really well, okay? He knew all the stuff. He says this in Philippians 3, verse 4, Though I myself have some reason for confidence in the flesh also, also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, I'm really good at being good. In fact, let me list out the ways that I'm good at being good circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. In other other words, my pedigree is really looking great. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But this is his conclusion. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, he came to the conclusion that his, little, his cloak Wasn't going to do it. In fact, it was just trash compared to how God would have clothed him in Christ Jesus. He's saying it's really no big trade. I traded plastic for gold. I traded these skins that I'd performed and done myself in order to be clothed in Christ and his righteousness. He traded in what was insufficient for what was ultimately sufficient in Christ. And so, for everyone in this room, if you, if if you end up your life believing that some, present, some presentation of your highly edited self is going to be how you stand before God, I'm just pleading with you to see that these cloaks are insufficient. Frederick uh, Buchner wrote this story, a memoir of his life, and it's called Telling Secrets, and he writes this in the beginning. The original shimmering self gets buried so deep that most of us will end up hardly living out of it at all. Instead, we live out of all the other selves, which we're constantly putting on and taking off like coats and hats against the world's weather. He's describing exactly how our cloaks, our fig leaves are just insufficient. Constantly having to put them on and take them off depending on who we're with so that we can avoid feeling exposed and shamed. This demands of us as Christians to have regular rhythms of vulnerability. I mentioned Brene Brown earlier. She, uh, literally, her TED Talk has 37 billion views. And it's all about being vulnerable in order to deal with your shame. And she's on to something, okay? She likes the kingdom. She just doesn't talk about the king, <laughs> There is a regular practice that all of us Christians should be aware of so that we can decloak ourselves. This doesn't mean that you share your secrets with everybody, but it does mean that someone, at least yourself, knows who you actually are. So you're not just living in a world, because the risk is that you'll begin to believe in the person that you're pretending to be and not actually be the person who God is redeeming you to be. So Christian vulnerability is not just about sharing our stories with one another. You can get that in group therapy, okay? It's about us exposing one another to the presence of Christ in ourselves. So if it's just about me being known and my story being known, then you could get that anywhere. The reason that it's important within the Christian community is because as we confess our sins to one another, we're able to present ourselves as a royal priesthood so that we facilitate bringing our sins into the light and regularly saying i my only hope is jesus christ clothing me in dignity so the reality that we would confess our sins and tell our stories is not just so that we'd be witnessed by one another, but that we would be welcomed in one another's and in the presence of God himself into the very places that we fear rejection the most because we're a holy priesthood ministering God's presence to each other and forgiving. And because of this, because we can be vulnerable, we're the quickest to confess our sins and we're the quickest to offer forgiveness to one another. That should be a staple culture of Christian church. Because we have already know that the worst of us has been known by Christ. The church should be the first place that we stop pretending. In Colossians 3, it talks about being hidden with Christ and God. And then it goes on to say this. There's a way you got to take off some things in order to put other things on. Colossians 3, 9 and 10 says this, Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. In other words, the ways in which we've lost and been stained by sin, the ways that, that our image has been corrupted by sin is being restored as we take off all that we're pretending to be and we put on this glorious image of Christ Jesus as we work it out in community together. Second application. Where are you? Application number two. Hiding is fruitless. It's fruitless. Where can you hide from God's presence? Let me give you a secret. Nowhere, okay? There's nowhere that you can hide. In fact, Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter 4, we quoted at the end, end of our, our, passage, our sermon last week, the end of this passage. But it talks about how God's Word pierces through to the heart. And all of us are exposed, starting in verse 12, it says this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Look at this. No creature is hidden from His sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have must give an account. In other words, if you're pretending to hide, you really, there, there's really, it's fruitless. You're only going to be exhausted because he already sees you. Third application is this. You actually can receive responsibility. You can take responsibility. Maybe this is the most familiar of all of these responses of sin because you can tell me all the reasons that you're a victim of other people's crimes, but you can't tell me the crimes that you've, you've actually committed. Maybe, maybe you're in this place where you can see how everyone else is to blame for the shattered dreams and hopes. But when you're confronted by God, He asks the question, where are you? It's best to come clean because He already knows. Just come clean. When we see the reality of sin... Part of our repenting is that we're both the quickest to acknowledge and say, I'm responsible for that and asking for forgiveness because we long to enjoy that kind of communion with God. The thing that you're avoiding, the thing that you're pretending to avoid, ultimately what you were made for was communion with Him. So if you're running and you're avoiding guilt and shame, I want you to know this, God is so rich in mercy. And I've quoted this book before, so if, if this is not new for you, I apologize, but it's just a great word from Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It says this that, that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which the divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe the most make him hug hardest it means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours it's it is unrestrained floodlight sweeping magnanimous it means our haunting shame is not a problem for him but the very thing he loves most to work with it means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit Our sins actually cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means that on the day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we'll weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. The last application, where are you? I just want to plea with you to allow God to clothe you in his dignity, to clothe you in his righteousness, in the same way that he made great provision for Adam and Eve, he's made great provision to everyone who believes through Jesus Christ. The conclusion of Paul saying, all these things that were great about my pedigree and resume, his conclusion was this, Philippians 3, nine, And having been found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on on faith. In other words, he found something that was much more valuable than all the ways that he could seek to alleviate his guilt or present himself glorious. He found something that was much more trustworthy, much more beautiful to give him a righteousness he couldn't earn. So some of you, maybe today you need to be relieved of shame. Maybe some of you have no shame. (laughs) I don't know where you're coming from. But I know this, that God still asks this kind of question. He asks us, where are you? And his invitation, whether you feel like you are very far from him or you're very near him, his invitation still stands to come and to be clothed by him, clothed in dignity, being restored by what only he can do for you. We don't have to hide. Let's pray together and pray to that end. Father, thank you for this, your word, and I pray that you would script it into our hearts and lives so that we might both come before you and be with one another in a way that's transformative. I pray that the gospel would take root today, that we would see all the ways that we've trusted in ourselves and our presentations, our highly edited selves, And I pray that we'd come clean today. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.